you for listening to this message from Life in the Sun Christian Fellowship. We hope you'll be inspired to honor God and make disciples. Last week we said that God is a God who works. We said God is the first worker. We said God is the finest worker. We can go to the next slide. And we said that God fulfills our work. As we continue this series, uh, what I'd like to do is uh, come back to a story that I shared last week, because there are some faulty views that we have about work. Remember the story I shared about the farmer? He had done an amazing job, visited by his pastor. Pastor came out and said, man, you and God have done an amazing job here at the farm. He said, pastor, you should have seen it when God had it all by himself. And that farmer represents a a faulty view about work, and there are a couple of them that I'd like to address today. Uh, One of them is a secular view. A secular view about work is the idea that uh, God is in his own realm in the universe, and we're here in the real dimension doing life, and those two realms don't interact. The secular view I would believe that life is divided into two disconnected parts. God is in a spiritual dimension, and work is in a real dimension. God stays in the realm, in his realm of the universe, while we go to work and do life. And these different realms, they never interact. Now, as Christians who have a relationship with God, we normally wouldn't think of ourselves this way. But because it's part of our culture... And part of the way we grew up and the way we think, um, I would suggest that it can be kind of in the back of our mind, like operating software behind our consciousness. I'll just give you an example. Some of you have heard this before, but for those of you who are new, um, it's, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good thing to consider. How many of you um, had time alone with God every day this week, reading the Bible and in prayer all seven days in the last week. How many of you did that? I see a few hands. Okay. Now, don't feel bad if you didn't. That's not the point of the question. The point is this. On those days when you didn't spend time alone with God, how many of you thought the rest of your day just carries on as usual? And I would guess that most of us probably thought things would carry on as usual. And that's an example of how we don't connect what goes on in our relationship with God with everyday life. One problem with the secular view is this. It sets us up for disappointment. Because if you leave God out of the picture, you'll have to get your sense of importance. You'll have to get your sense of fulfillment and a source of reward from someplace else. Someplace else, such as work. Work becomes the answer to the question of, who am I? Work becomes the answer to, why am I important? And that's a very shaky foundation because what happens if you lose your job? You're suddenly a nobody. You're not important because you're not employed. And the secular view of work tends to make an idol out of our career. Career becomes the number one priority. Your relationship with God takes a back seat. Family takes a back seat. Even your relationships with other people can take a back seat. Everything gets filtered through the question of what impact does this have on my career? 
The secular view of work leaves God out of the system. And this is particularly unacceptable for Christians because God calls us to make him the center of our lives. He wants, he wants us to have a biblical worldview that weaves him into every aspect of our lives, including work. He wants to be invited into our work. He wants to be Lord of our work. And so that's one view is the secular view. The other is the sacred view. And the sacred view is the idea that, you know, real work is serving the Lord full time. And then there is that stuff that other people do. And the problem with that view is it can give us a perception that some people are less. Or if I'm not in that category of serving the Lord full time, it can give me a perception of myself that I'm less. It's this idea that real work is serving God in full-time Christian work, and then there's everything else running a poor second. We may see ourselves as less, we may see others as less, but the truth is, the truth is God's view is not divided between the sacred and the secular. All of life relates to God, and all of life is sacred, whether you're making a business presentation whether you're changing soiled diapers, whether you're leading somebody to Christ, all of it is from God. And it's unwise to think that there are sacred and secular things that we do. You know, it really all depends on what's going on in our heart. You can engage in what looks like holy activity, like prayer and Bible study, but still have a dark, self-centered, unforgiving spirit. Remember the Pharisees? On the other hand, you can work at a job where the conversation is littered with profanity, the work is slipshod, the politics are wearisome, and yet like Daniel and Joseph in the Old Testament, you can keep your own conversation pure and your behavior above reproach. You can bring honor and glory to God in a very worldly environment. God doesn't just want us to do holy things, he wants us to be holy people. And if we make the mistake of focusing on what we do rather than who we are, then we live in a false sense of security. Because things that we have and do, they can disappear overnight. Once upon a time, there was a group of men in a private gym in the locker room. And uh, there was a cell phone on the bench that rang. And one of them picked it up and immediately, without hesitation, said, hello. And the voice on the other end, the little sweet voice said, hi, honey, it's me. He said, hi, sweetheart. She said, hey, I'm over here at the shopping mall down the road, and uh, you know, I just found this beautiful mink coat that I just love. And he said, really? Uh, How much is it? She said, it's only $1,400. He said, well, if you really like it, okay, that's fine. She said, well, just one more thing before you go. She said, earlier today, I went by the Mercedes dealership, and I saw one of the latest models, and the salesman, he gave me a great deal. He said, "Uh uh-huh. How much? She said, it's only $60,000. He said, well, okay, but for that price, I want the full package, all the options. She said, okay, sure. He said, one more thing. I hope it's not asking too much, but I went and visited our real estate agent. And you remember that property that we looked at last year, the one on the beachfront with uh, the English garden and the pool? He said, yeah. She said, well, it's on sale. It's only $450,000. He said, wow, that's a good deal. And she said, you know what the good news is we have all that money in the bank. He said, okay, um, but I want you to make a counteroffer for 420000 
She said, okay, sweetheart, thanks. He said, okay, bye. And then he clicked up, he held up the phone. He said, does anybody know who this cell phone belongs to? <laughs> and I share that as an illustration that what we have can disappear overnight. <laughs> we need to work in such a way that our labor will have lasting results. And so here's the main point of today's message. If you don't remember anything else, remember this. The work that works is work that glorifies God by fulfilling his purpose. The work that works is the work that glorifies God by fulfilling his purpose. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, the Apostle Paul said, Whatever you do, and, and Elmore mentioned this earlier in the worship, Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And so what is the work that glorifies God? And what is the work that fulfills his purpose? And today we're going to look at three qualities of work that glorify God and fulfill his purpose. And it dovetails with the message last week because these qualities are going to be an extension of something we began last week. I talked about God is the finest worker and he invites us to do fine work. And there are a couple qualities that are necessary in order for that to happen. One is our motivation and secondly is the quality of our work. When we talked about motivation, we talked about love is the motivation that makes sure that our work is something that has lasting value. And the second thing the Lord looks at is the quality of our work. Well, we're going to look at a couple other qualities uh, today. In each quality, I'm going to look at the life of Joseph as an example. Joseph from the Old Testament. And if you've read that story before, It's an amazing story. If you haven't read it, I want to encourage you to do that. Uh, We don't have enough time today to read it because it goes from Genesis chapter 30 all the way to Genesis chapter 50. And uh, we would spend the rest of the service just reading 20 chapters in the Bible. And so I'm just going to highlight a few of the, the points in Joseph's life that parallel with the work that works. So here's the first quality. The work that works is done with humility. In 1 Peter 5.5, we read that God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. And I want to point out a few things about living in humility, and what I'm about to say is going to surprise you. And one way that I can prepare you to process what I'm about to say is just to remember this, that God's ways are higher than our ways. God's ways are higher than our ways. It's important to be humble because we can tempt other people to be jealous. The example with Joseph is that he was favored by his dad. He was the youngest at the time. His dad gave him a really nice colored coat, an expensive coat. And his brothers, because of the favor that they saw upon the youngest, were jealous. And you'll notice that Joseph kind of had special treatment in the family. It says that when he went out to go visit his brothers in the field, he would normally stay at home. And he went to go visit them. They were doing all the work. And, you know, as a younger brother, he probably didn't understand this principle about the need to be humble because others might get jealous. Didn't realize that the favor of his father was actually pitting him against his own siblings. And so he probably enjoyed that favor. He's probably strutting around, wearing his coat, saying, hey guys, look what I got. 
you know, probably enjoying the fact that he doesn't have to go out and work in the field like the older ones do. In the meantime, they're having a problem with Joseph. The reason I said earlier that what I'm about to say is going to surprise you is how God deals with jealousy. There are several examples in the Bible when people are jealous of another. The way God deals with that is he crushes the person that the people are jealous of. And the first time I heard that, I thought, wait a minute, that sounds backwards. He crushes the, pe- the people that they're jealous of? The person like Joseph, who has favor, and the brothers are jealous of him, he crushes Joseph, is the point. And if you think about it, Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. He got sold into slavery. He was accused of a false crime and thrown in prison. Another example illustrating this idea, remember Cain and Abel? Abel had an offering that was regarded by God. Cain did not. Cain got jealous of his brother Abel. Jealousy is, was motivating the very first murder in the Bible. And Cain was crushed because of jealousy. The ultimate example is Jesus himself. He had favor with the multitudes. The religious establishment and authority at the time became jealous because of his popularity. And they crucified him. Now you might say to yourself, what are you saying? How can this be? Doesn't this sound so unjust? And the reason God crushes the one that the people are jealous of is so that they will no longer be jealous of that person. Knowing everything that Jesus Christ has gone through, is there anybody here who doesn't think he deserves to sit at the right hand of the Father? Nobody. The Lord crushes the one that the people are jealous of in order that we will no longer be jealous of that person and the status and the position that God is going to elevate them to. Joseph eventually was established as the number two person in the superpower of the world. Jesus later was raised to the right hand of the Father. Now part of being humble is learning how to honor authority. That's a big value in the kingdom of God, learning how to honor authority. It's a big lesson in the kingdom of God because God's kingdom is a kingdom of honor. It's all about attitude. Now, do we we listen? Do we respond to authorities around us? An example is my daughter Tara when she was little. It's just kind of the way God hardwired her. But she was very teachable. And... She honored us as parents. It started when she was a little toddler, and I decided I was going to teach her how to swim. I love to swim. She must have been maybe three years old, and I just started training her in the bathtub. And I said, okay, uh, blow bubbles in the water. And so she would blow. And I'd say, okay, now put your nose in the water and blow bubbles. And then I said, okay, now dunk your whole head in the water and go under. And she dove under, and she came up like, yes! And I said, man, this is going to be fun. And she was just so teachable and responded to everything that I said. And she became a beautiful swimmer. Thank you, Van. She later joined a swim team. And the coach was a former Olympian from Japan. 
and uh, took her to the next level. And she was the kind of person that if she swam a lap and came back and somebody watched her and said, you know, I'd like you to adjust your form just slightly a little bit to be like this. The next time she did it, she corrected her stroke and that's the way she swam from then on. And because of that, she became a beautiful swimmer. She's like a knife, glass knife going through the water. And, and just, you know, the, the Bible says that God opposes the proud, but he gives favor to the humble. And you could just see that there was favor on her. She later went on to represent Guam in the South Pacific Games. And she was only 14 at the time, competing against 18 to 20-year-olds, and she came home with three bronze medals. And all of that was because she was honoring the authorities around her and listening. Have you ever been around people, you try to correct them, and they don't listen to you? (laughs) I mean, you tell them, and they're stubborn, and they think they know better, and they don't want to do it. I mean, isn't it so rewarding when you meet a student who's like, they just, they actually do what you say? And imagine how much further they can go if they would learn from other people around them. You know, wherever Tara went, she seemed to leave her mark. Just being humble in her heart, you know, God's favor was with her. Uh, One day, she must have been a sophomore or junior in in high school, and she had read this book called The Ishbane Conspiracy. If you haven't read it and you enjoy Christian fiction, it's a very well-written book, The Ishbane Conspiracy. It's in the same line as C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. It's about spiritual battle, but from the perspective of the enemy. So anyway, she's just sharing the story of the book with her English teacher. The next year, the book became required reading in the curriculum. I said, Tara, you're just always leaving your mark wherever you go. You know, with her professors when she's at the University of Portland, they, they said, Tara, we'd like your help in editing one of our textbooks. Her younger sister said, Tara, are you qualified to do that? I mean, that's only a question or maybe an accusation that a younger sibling could make. <laughs> But you know, in the years that she's been there, she's had like five different jobs. She's never interviewed once. Uh, People just come up to her and they say, would you work for us? And just because she's humble in her heart, God's favor is there. The work that works is done in humility. The work that works is done in humility. Secondly, the work that works is done with purity. Do you remember the story about Joseph and Potiphar's wife? Joseph was given charge of Potiphar's entire household. And the Bible says that he was handsome. And uh, Potiphar was the captain of the guard for Pharaoh. I mean, just think of maybe uh, the men who guard the president. And this guy is the supervisor. And he's got a beautiful home, he's got a beautiful wife, but he's away from home a lot, he's out at work. And she's there alone with him and she wants to go to bed with him. And he says no, and she keeps hounding him day after day after day and he keeps saying no. Finally he says, look, he said, my master has given me charge of everything in the household. He doesn't worry about anything. He's giving me access to everything except you because you are his wife. How could I dishonor my master and my Lord? And there was a deep conviction in his heart that he would maintain moral purity. And that's a good example for us to keep in mind because in your life, in your line of work, temptation will come. There will be situations. Somebody is going to flirt. 
Somebody's going to make eye contact. They're going to give signals. I'm open. I'm available. Maybe the temptation will come through the internet, a temptation to click on that site that we shouldn't click on. And the Lord is wanting us to know that if you want your life to be a life that works and that your labor is something that will outlast you and have value, that it really all depends on the purity of our heart. Here's the principle in the Bible. The greater the purity, the greater the influence. That's why the Bible says if you aspire to leadership, if you aspire to teach, that's a great thing. But you will be held to a stricter accountability. Because of being a role model, you have an influence. Your role model has greater significance. I'll give you an example in the Bible. The person with the greatest purity was Jesus. He was sinless. And he has had the greatest influence throughout world history. The very date that we have today is influenced by his date of birth. All of us have been influenced by him. Generation after generation, God is establishing a kingdom for himself out of the kingdom of man. And he has this massive influence throughout human history because of purity. The greater the purity, the greater the influence. On this topic of work and purity, uh, there is an important question that we need to address. And the question is this. Is all work equally valid? And the answer is no. All legitimate work is an extension of God's work of maintaining and providing for his creation. All legitimate work is an extension of God's work of maintaining and providing for his creation. Remember, God put Adam and Eve in the garden to maintain it. That's our purpose, is to take care of the earth. Legitimate work is work that contributes to what God wants done in the world and does not contribute to what God does not want done in the world. So, non-legitimate work would include jobs that are illegal, such as prostitution, such as drug dealing, or professional thieves. Then there are jobs that are legal but still questionable in terms of ethics and morality, such as working in abortion clinics or pornography and the gambling industry. These jobs are legal, but you have to ask, how are they cooperating with God to benefit his creation? Even with legitimate work, there are ethical and moral decisions that you will have to make. Whether you make the right choices or not will determine your level of positive influence and maybe whether or not you keep your position. The Bible is clear that your gifting, your strength, will make room for you. It'll make a position for you. Your talent will make a place for you. But your character will determine whether or not you are able to maintain that position. Character allows you to keep a position. In Joseph's case... Being the head of Potiphar's household was not, the position, was not the position that God had for him. His purity and subsequent, subsequent consequence of getting thrown in prison was actually setting him up for the position that God had in mind. Lastly, the work that works is done in faith. Apart from faith, it's impossible to please God. You know, Joseph, he was falsely accused of rape with Potiphar's wife. She lied. He got thrown in prison. He was there for years. 
as you know the story, there were two other prisoners. One was the cupbearer and the baker for Pharaoh. And both had dreams, which Joseph interpreted. And so he interpreted the cupbearer's dream, which said in three days you're going to be reestablished to your position with Pharaoh. And the baker heard that and he said, wow, that sounds good. Would you interpret my dream? He said, yeah, in three days they're going to hang you. Later, the cupbearer went to go back with Pharaoh. On his way out, Joseph said, hey, remember me, okay? Talk to the boss. <laughs> Let him know I'm in here. I'm not supposed to be in here. I was falsely accused. I'm, not, I'm, I'm innocent. Put out a good word for me. In that situation, Joseph was exercising some self-influence. And that's different from trusting God for his timing and letting God work out the details of your situation. You know, and sometimes we're tempted to do that too. You know, we have a need, we have a situation. We say, hey, Par, can you hook me up? We ask for, you know, that's so common here on Guam. You know, I did you a favor, can you do me a favor? And in that kind of self-effort, we can circumvent what God is doing. We can get ahead of ourselves and get ahead of what God wants to do in his timing in the situation. Oftentimes, there'll be situations that present themselves to me. And instead of trying to make it happen, I will purposely withdraw. I won't say anything and I'll hold back. And I'll say, Lord, if it's of you, you'll make it happen. And then when it comes to pass, you know it's of God. Sometimes if you get your fingers in there and you start manipulating things and then things occur, uh, you don't really know if that was God. You know, what if, what if the cupbearer had put in a word for Joseph? You know where he would have ended up? He would have been the assistant cupbearer. God had a different position in mind for him, but God had to teach him what it meant to live by faith. It was two years later, after the cupbearer was restored to his position, that Pharaoh had a dream. And he was disturbed by the dream, and he called all of his wise men. None of them could interpret it. And then all of a sudden, the cupbearer is there, and he goes, you know what? I just remembered. I was in prison two years ago, and there was this guy, and I had a dream, and he interpreted it for me. How many of you know that's God's timing? That he happened to be there when the Pharaoh was sharing the dream. He happened to remember Joseph. And the Bible says they went and they got him quickly. They cleaned him up. They changed his clothes, clean shaven. They brought him before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, I heard you can interpret dreams. Now by this time, Joseph has learned several lessons. He's learned what it means to be humble. He doesn't say, you know, earlier when he had the dream that all of his brothers and sisters and his mom and dad would bow down before him, it was kind of like he was strutting his stuff. He said, hey guys, I had a dream. Guess what? You're all going to bow down to me one day. No wonder they were jealous of him. No wonder they sold him into slavery. But by now he's become humbled through life circumstances. And he comes to Pharaoh and he says, no, I cannot interpret, but God can. And he says, here's the interpretation of the dream. He says, you're going to have seven years of bumper crops. He says, after that, you're going to have seven years of famine. He said, I suggest that you find somebody who can manage the seven years of abundance and save up for the seven years of famine. He said, select a wise man in the country to do that. And the Pharaoh said, you're the man, and made him number two in all of Egypt. And so Joseph is an excellent example of being humble and walking by faith and learning to wait in God's timing to see what God will do. 
There are works that God has for you. Ephesians 2.10 says, He has prepared good works in advance for you to do. There are assignments that God has for each one of you. And our job is to be in a position spiritually, in the right position spiritually, where we can be in sync with God, where we're learning how to love God and to love people, that we're committed to doing the best that we can, that we have quality work, that we're operating in faith, and that we're humble. And as we do all of those, you're going to find that, the, that when God uses you, it'll be a labor that lasts. It'll be fruit that lasts. Amen? The work that works is filled with humility, is filled with purity, and is filled with faith. And I want to invite you just to take a moment to consider uh, these areas and just ask yourself between you and God, Lord, uh, what are you saying to me? And how does this apply in my life? And so if you would, I want to invite you just to take some time out with God, just in the privacy of your heart between you and the Lord, just to take some time to pray, and just to kind of get quiet and close your eyes and connect with God. I just want you to ask the Lord, God, ask the Lord, how does this apply to me? And what are you saying to me? And so let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, thank you for the many examples like Joseph and Jesus that have gone before us. And Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and just impress us with what area of life are you asking me to address? Lord, what are you saying to me? So just take some time in the quietness of your heart just to listen. And I want to give you some time to do business with God. Father, thank you for your presence in my life. Father, thank you for the journey that you have for me. Lord, thank you for this amazing gift of life. And God, I want to be in sync with you. I want to be a part of what it is that you're doing in and through me and around me. Lord, I hear the way you're speaking to my heart, the things that you're bringing to my attention. And Father, today I ask that you would finish the good work that you began, that you would work in and through me, and that you would allow me to live out these lessons and these principles that are so valuable in your kingdom, to bring you honor, to glorify you, to cooperate with your purpose here on Guam or wherever it is that you take me.
God, I can't do it by myself. God, I I turn to you and ask that you would guide me and that you would enable me to be able to live the life. So God, would you give me wisdom? Would you give me strength? Would you give me the conviction to be able to make those choices that I get faced with on a daily basis? Father, I pray that as you continue to work that out in my life, that you will be honored. I'd like you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. There may be some in this room here today as I'm talking about a relationship with God. That's something that has piqued your interest. That there have been things going on in your life and you sense that God has been trying to get your attention. Today, you're here not just because you're doing the church thing, but you actually came to to seek God, to experience Him. And if that describes you, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to Him. If you've never made a conscious choice to open your life up to God and say, God, I'm inviting you to come in and be a part of my life, I want to give you an opportunity to express that to Him. And it's real simple. It's just talking to God. That's what prayer is. And so what I'll do is I'll just pray out loud and you can pray along with me. And God will hear you. We're just going to pray a simple prayer just to invite him to come into your life and to show himself to you, to reveal his ways to you, to allow you to live life as he intended. And if that sounds like something that you would like to do, then I invite you to pray with me. But before we pray, I'd like to know who I'm praying with. I have a little signal for that, and that is if you would simply look up, then when my eyes meet yours, I'll know that we're going to pray together. And so if that's something that you'd like to do, go ahead and look up at this time, and then we're going to pray together in a moment. Yes, I see you in the back. Yes, anybody else? Yes. Anybody else? All right, anybody else? Good, let's pray. God, I need you. God, I'm here today. I'm responding to you. Lord, I sense that you're there on the edge of my life, and today I'm making a decision to open up the door of my heart. I'm opening myself up and inviting you to come in and be a part of my life. God, I'm asking you to Show me how to live. Give me a new start. Lord, there are things I've done that have been hurtful. God, I ask you to forgive me. Lord, I thank you for Jesus, his death on the cross. And I receive your forgiveness for my sin. And I ask you to cleanse me from guilt, from shame, from the worst moments in my life. God, would you free me from the weight of the past? cleanse me from the guilt and purify my heart with the forgiveness of the cross. I just take a moment now to receive your spirit into mine and receive your forgiveness. God, I ask that you would reveal yourself and your ways to me. Give me a new start. Father, I thank you for loving me and forgiving me. I thank you for coming into my life. I thank you for giving me a new beginning and a new life. 
And I pray that you would continue to complete that work in me, in Jesus' name.